If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 2 Timothy tonight, 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is the last letter of Paul to his young son in the faith, Timothy. And here he gives admonition to Timothy in order to help Timothy not only live the Christian life, but to begin even now thinking about dying well, about finishing well. I thought I would take a page out of Dr. Wilborn's book and do a one-off sermon helping us think about the Christian life in this new year. I realize this is not the first Sunday of the new year, but it is still January, so that's fine. We, we finished our Golden Chain series last Lord's Day evening, and so before we jump into our next series, I thought we'd spend tonight thinking about this topic, that is, namely, living well, but also dying well to the glory of God, keeping faithful all the way to the end. That's what's before us tonight. So let's look now to God's Word, uh, beginning there in 2 Timothy 4, verse 6. We'll read God's Word, and then we'll pray and ask for his help and blessing. Let's read from verses 6 down through 22 at the end of there of the chapter. This is God's holy Word. Take heed how you hear it. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark. And bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trumpheus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Let's pray together. Lord, this is your word, and we need it. We shall not live by bread alone, but by every last word that proceeds from your mouth. So help us now by your Holy Spirit to read and to mark and to learn and to comprehend all that we study tonight. We ask that you'd grant us your Spirit's ministry and illumination as we give ourselves over to studying this, your holy, inerrant, and inspired word. How we thank you for it. Help us tonight as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Death is one of those things culturally that we don't want to think about very often, only when we're forced to. That's something that I've been thinking about in recent months, just as I'm observing trends in our society. 
Uh, Jonathan Edwards, the great New England pastor and theologian from the 1700s, he had a, a series of resolutions that he would write. And some of you are probably already aware of this, and it always seems that Edwards' resolutions get renewed attention at the beginning of the year, of the new calendar year, when people are thinking about useful resolutions and perhaps less useful resolutions that get quickly broken. But Edwards had a series of, re- of resolutions that he would write, an, an ongoing inventory of scriptural disciplines that he wanted to inculcate. And here's one of them. This is Edwards' resolution number nine. Resolved to think much on all occasions of my own dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. Now, was it a morbid fixation on death that drove him to contemplate such a thing? No, it was simply a healthy perspective on reality. And that is that death comes to all men. And for the Christian, Death is but the gateway to life eternal, and so preparation for that inevitable moment, which will come to us all, is a wise thing. Indeed, previous generations, frankly, did not have the luxury of of avoiding the subject like we try to do. For, For centuries, life expectancies were shorter. Disease was rampant. John Owen, the great Puritan minister, had 11 children. Only one of them survived to adulthood. Death was a constant reality that was thrust before them. And so Christians of previous generations spent a lot of time pondering it and how they could live this life faithfully in preparation for the life to come. And perhaps it's due to the the pandemic of 2020 and all the ramifications of it that will push our society, maybe, just maybe, to grapple with our own mortality. Many cultural commentators have noted this already, but we live in an age where we've moved reminders of death out of the churchyards and into the suburbs where we can't see them. It used to be you would come to the church meeting house and you couldn't get into the building without having to pass through headstones, pass through church cemeteries, reminded of the death of your loved ones and fellow townsmen and church members and being forced to contemplate your own mortality even before you could walk into the church building. We don't have that as much anymore. We've, We've sanitized that reminder of death, haven't we, and moved it out of sight and out of mind. It makes it easy to avoid thinking about Even the language of funeral, we like to euphemize. Sometimes you'll go to a funeral service and they'll have those little little printouts, those little cards that they provide. And it used to be that they would have the the dates of the deceased. It would say birth and death. But now we want to euphemize that. And now it'll say things like sunrise and sunset, away from the stark reality, the stark language that forces us to remind ourselves of mortality. We're forced to think about the reality of death all the time, try as we might. There's folks we know within the life of our own body that are staring down the ravages of cancer. We mentioned last week in our sermon folks like Kim Isbell and Alan Lay burying their fathers last year, Ken Center having to bury his father last year, Uh, folks like Will McNinch preparing for his mother's homegoing to be with the Lord. And so as I was thinking about those things, thinking about the broader trends in our culture and our society, thinking about these realities within the life of our own congregation here, In light of where we are, both as a culture and as a congregation, it seems good for us to think about this biblically. It's never too early to be thinking about these things. We don't know how many days on earth the Lord has granted to us. Moses in Psalm 90 admonishes us to number our days. And so, as we look at how the Apostle Paul strove to finish the race well, it will be instructive for us as to how we can live the Christian life faithfully and press on to the end, and press on well. One commentator that I consulted pointed out five general principles that we see here that are simple and straightforward, and yet at the same time integral 
to keep us faithfully pressing on. It's not rocket science. It's, it's not, there's no secret formula. It's simply scripture. If we're going to live the Christian life faithfully all the way to the end, we need, as we'll, and we'll outline our sermon in this way, one, we need to be ever bracing for the reality of life in this fallen world. Or if I can put it another way, we need to have realistic expectations. That's the first thing. Secondly, we need to be ever saturating our minds in Scripture. Third, we need to be ever seeking refuge in Christ. Fourth, we need to be ever engaged in Christian community. And then fifthly, we need to be ever dependent on grace. So let's think through those five things for a few moments together tonight. First, first thing, we must be ever bracing, be ever bracing for the reality of life in this fallen world. Or, to put it another way, we need to have realistic expectations. Look at verses 6 through 12 of our text here. 6 through 12. And then allow also your eyes to scan down at verses 14 and 15. We need to have realistic expectations for what life is like in this fallen world. The Christian life is often faced with relational challenges. Many of you know this. This is no secret. Just look at what happens to the Apostle Paul. Paul tells us here that he's about to cross the finish line. He's fought the good fight. He's kept the faith. He's finished the race. That's a verse we love. Sounds almost like a fairy tale ending. Ah, the great apostle Paul, saint that he was, going from triumph to triumph, and as he prepares to soon go home to paradise, right? Not quite. Notice that it's hard in Paul's last days. Very hard. He's deserted by Demas, verse 10. Crescens and Titus and Tychicus are doing exactly what he wanted them to do, thankfully, verses 10, 11, and 12. They're working. They're faithfully ministering. But that means they're not with him. And so, therefore, he's alone. And Paul is lonely. You can pick it up in this passage that he he misses them. Now, Luke's there. Luke is staying. That's good. And Mark is invited to come, just like Timothy. Twice in this passage, Paul asks Timothy to come, but he tells tells him there in verse 11, when you come, Timothy, bring Mark with you. And then in verses 14 and 15, we hear, we read, Alexander is opposing. Now, let's think about that for a few moments. Here's Paul. He's facing desertion. A faithful worker has bailed out. He has deserted Paul. He has deserted the cause. He has left the field of ministry, and he's gone back to Thessalonica. That's Demas. Here's aged Apostle Paul at the end of his life, and he's heartbroken. He's an old man betrayed by one whom he counted as among his close friends. I don't know about you, but for me at least, it calls to mind Psalm 41, verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. King David, as he penned those words, he knew the pain of close companionship only to be betrayed. So did Jesus. Psalm 41 ultimately speaks of the experience of our Lord Jesus as he's betrayed by Judas. But Paul, he knows something of that too, because Paul is simply following in his Savior's footsteps. And we ought to expect similarly, brothers and sisters. If we can can reverently invert the words from James 4.4, friendship with God often means enmity with the world. Faithfulness in our life, our life toward God, faithfulness as Christians, will not always be rewarded with thankfulness and pleasantry. Sometimes it will even yield painful betrayal, and sometimes even at the hands of those closest to us. But then we see that there's also opposition, not only betrayal and desertion, but there's also opposition, as if desertion weren't enough. 
So much so from Alexander, so much opposition from Alexander, that Paul has to warn Timothy about it. Watch out, Timothy, for Alexander the coppersmith. He opposed our message strongly. You be on guard against him as well. You see that there in verses 14 and 15. Paul facing opposition. <laughs> you, you've heard the phrase, it's, it's so trendy and, and, and buzzworthy to say these days, right? When someone is against a current social custom or uh, a value that they're on the wrong side of history. Well, I can't even begin to imagine being on the wrong side of history in this regard of being against the Apostle Paul. It's unthinkable. Now, I understand we don't have apostles these days, but, but you can imagine, can't you? Something like if... If R.C. Sproul or James Montgomery Boyce or Robert Murray McShane, if they, were, if they were coming to town to preach the gospel, and you were going to go around and tell all your friends and neighbors, oh, don't, don't listen to that guy. Don't go read his books. Don't listen to that gospel that he's peddling. You can't trust him. You don't want to listen to him. He's crafty. He's a liar. He can't be trusted. That's what Alexander is doing to the greatest evangelist who ever lived an appointed emissary of King Jesus himself, the Apostle Paul. He's, he's undermining a legitimate, biblical, Christ-exalting ministry every step of the way. Not only is it sinful, quite frankly, it's embarrassingly stupid. Paul is a faithful disciple, and yet he's still faced with these harsh realities. And it is heartbreaking. But do notice that there's a happy story in here, too. It's that story of Mark. You remember from Acts 15 and 16 when Paul and his his team went out to take the gospel to the Gentiles? Mark turned back. Mark, it seems, wasn't fully on board with going to the Gentiles with the gospel, and so he, he abandoned that particular mission. And as we know, there was a rift in the friendship for quite some time. But apparently, it seems, we can deduce here from this text that Mark has seen the error of his ways. He has repented of his wrongdoing at some point, and that friendship and that camaraderie were restored. I was, a couple of years ago, I was told a story of a, of a pastor and a church member. Uh, there was, this was years ago, there was some, some misunderstanding, some huge falling out between them. And so the church member ended up leaving. But here, some 15, I guess it's been 17 years now, years later, this, this is in a PCA church. These two have been reunited. And there's been forgiveness and reconciliation. And now that church member who was once at odds and at hostility with his former pastor is now working with a church planting effort from that congregation. And that church member is working side by side with his old, formerly estranged pastor to plant this new church and to reach a whole new group of people with the gospel. Joys like that can sometimes happen. Praise the Lord. And here in our text, Paul, you see, is eager for Mark to be restored to his company. You see how he says that to Timothy? Bring Mark with you. Bring him with you. I want his company. I want his friendship. Bring him with you, Timothy. Yes, you can be deserted and you can be betrayed in the Christian life by Christian friends. And in some cases, they may never, ever come back like Demas here. And that is part of the heartbreak that exists in the reality of life in this fallen world. But on the other hand, some Christian friends may let you down. Some Christian friends may betray you. Some Christian friends may sin against you. And yet still one day, at least this side of heaven, be fully restored to joyfully serve alongside you as co-laborers. There is great heartache. That's a realistic expectation that we need to have of living life in this fallen world. But there's also the possibility for great joy, isn't there? But in all of this, we see something, don't we, of the relational heartaches that the Apostle Paul had as he was ministering in the very last days of his life. So there's a lesson there for us. 
We have to brace ourselves with realistic expectations if we're going to finish well. This is part of what life is like in a sinful world. In a fallen world, situations like this are wrought by sin. We, we need to be disabused, don't we, of the, of the Disney or the Hallmark movie storylines. Because if we think that things are going to get easier, I dare say that we're simply setting ourselves up for disappointment. For Paul, the apostle, things were hard. And things were hard all the way until he crossed the finish line. So let's be bracing ourselves with those realistic expectations. That's the first thing. Secondly, secondly, we need to be ever saturating our minds in Scripture. What else do we need to do if we're going to live the Christian life and finish the Christian life well? Well, secondly, we need to be ever saturating our minds in Scripture. Take a look at verse 13. When you come, Paul says to Timothy, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Now, we don't know what those books are. We don't know what those parchments were, but it's still quite a remarkable gathering that we're peering into here. So when Timothy brings Mark with him to go meet up with Paul, you're going to have Mark, you're going to have Paul, you're going to have Luke in the same place along with books and parchments. <laughs> All right, let your, let your reverent imagination run with that for a few moments. You've got half the gospel writers, right? Mark and Luke, two writers of the gospel. And you've got the authors of over half of the New Testament, Luke and Paul, in the same place with books and parchments. Just ponder that for a second. Whenever I read this passage, I always come away wanting to know what was going on there with this kind of meeting of the minds. I don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us precisely. But whatever those books and those parchments were, there is a strong consensus among the scholars that almost certainly Scripture was involved. Now, whether it was copies of some portion of the Old Testament that Paul was using, uh, perhaps it was some form, some early proto-form of what we now have of the New Testament, uh, perhaps some recorded collection of sayings of the Lord Jesus that he needed. Who knows? But think about this. This is the Apostle Paul. He wrote half of the New Testament. And at the end of his life, he still wants to be reading the books and parchments. This is incredible. And what does it teach us? Well, it teaches us that we should never stop studying God's word. All the way to the end of his life, Paul was dedicated, you see, to the renewal of his mind with the truth of God's word. He knew, he knew the truth of the blessed man, uh, the, the man whose mind is, and soul is well-nourished, and the one who meditates on God's law day and night, Psalm 1. We just sang that a few minutes ago. Paul knows the reality of that blessed life and what it entails, and we must know that too. Our communion with the Lord should drive us to know the Bible more, precisely because we want to know our God better, even unto the very last minute. I love what Charles Spurgeon says here about 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. Bring the books. Maybe you've heard that before, but I want to read you an excerpt, even if you've heard it before. It's worth hearing again. This is one of those classic statements of Christendom that every Christian should read at some point. This is Spurgeon. We do not know what the books were about, and we can only form some guess as to what the parchments were. Paul had a few books, perhaps wrapped up in that cloak, and Timothy was to be careful to bring them. Even an apostle must read. How rebuked we are by the apostle. He is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and yet he wants books. He has been preaching for at least 30 years, and yet he wants books. He has seen the risen Lord, and yet he wants books. He had had a wider experience than most men, men, and yet he wants books. 
He has been caught up into the third heavens and has heard things which it is unlawful for a man to utter, and yet he wants books. He had written the major part of the New Testament, and yet he wants books. The apostle says to Timothy, and so he says to every creature, Give thyself unto reading. Brethren, what is true of ministers is true of all our people. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will of all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritan writers and expositions of Scripture. We are quite persuaded that the very best way for you to be spending your leisure is either to be reading or praying. You may get much instruction from books, which afterwards you may use as a true weapon in your Lord and Master's service. Paul cries, bring the books, let us join that cry. That's Spurgeon from, on 2 Timothy 4, verse 13. In order to live and finish the Christian life well, brothers and sisters, we need to be ever saturating our minds in Scripture. The life of the mind should not end until we reach glory. And even then, frankly, it will not end. We'll talk more about that at another occasion. But even when we reach glory, the life of the mind will not cease. It will ever continue to expand as we continue to, to plumb and plumb and plumb the unfathomable depths of God's mercy toward us in Christ. We need to be ever saturating our minds in Scripture. That's the second thing. Thirdly, the third thing, we must, in order to live the Christian life well, in order to live faithfully all the way to the end, we must be ever seeking refuge in Christ. We live the Christian life based on Jesus' promise that he will never leave us or forsake us. We must believe that and cling to that truth in order to finish well. If you look at, if you look at verse 16 here in our text, this is one of the saddest verses in all the New Testament. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me. Remember Paul had appealed his case to Caesar was so that he would have to be taken to the, to the highest court in the empire. He, he had been living for a moment where he could give witness to Jesus Christ and he could testify to the gospel to the very highest ranking judiciary figures in the whole of the Roman Empire. And when that day came, no one stood by Humanly speaking, he was completely alone, just like his master who had been deserted by all his disciples. And in that moment, do you see how, how he tells Timothy, Timothy, I was completely alone. No one stood by me. And yet, verse 17, but the Lord stood by me. Jesus stood by me and strengthened me. And Paul, did you notice there at the end of, the end of 16, may it not be charged against them. Paul is abandoned by all of his Christian colleagues and friends in this great moment of testimony before the Supreme Court of Rome. And as he, even in that moment, he seems to echo, doesn't he, the words of Jesus at the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. And Paul now has his chance to say likewise, may this not be held against them. This dereliction, this abandonment, may this not be held against them. In that moment of abandonment and exposure and what must have been utter dejection, when all he had was Jesus, and the only place for comfort, for refuge, or for strength, for solace, was Jesus. And you see, for Paul, Jesus was enough. He was sufficient. To finish well, we must have realistic expectations. We must be ever saturating our minds in Scripture. And we must be ever seeking our refuge, our hope, our strength, our solace in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the third thing. Fourth, we must be ever engaged in Christian community. Ever engaged in Christian community. 
The Christian life is lived in the camaraderie, in the fellowship of Christian friends, and we should be thankful for them. The Christian life can be hard, yes? Very hard and frustrating and often discouraging, and you do not have to go at it alone. You were not meant to. Do you notice how often Paul's letters are are filled with greetings to and from Christian friends that he's passing along? Paul clearly loved people. He had close, sincere, warm friendships with men and women. Look at verse 19. Great Prisca and Aquila, and the household of Onesephorus, Erastus, Trophimus, Pudens, Eubulus, Linus, Claudia, the brethren. Paul evidently loved these Christian brothers and sisters. Paul spends a lot of time at the ends of his epistles and his letters exchanging greetings. We learn from this that Paul loves people in such a way that he wants to express that love that he has for people in such a way to create real Christian community, real gospel community, if you like. And he wants to convey the love of Christians to other Christians in such a way that it does do that. It does create that that gospel-wrought, scripture-wrought, spirit-wrought community. Paul has an agenda. It's a good agenda. It's a right agenda. He wants to create that sense of Christian community. He wants to build up the body of Christ, its coherence and communion. And he wants to do it by an expression of love. And see, even in a letter in the New Testament... Even in a letter of the New Testament, in Holy Scripture, Paul's got time to pass along greetings and expressions of love and care. He, he, he knew them, these saints. He knew them. And they knew him. And people in these different congregations knew one another. It's a, it's a portion of evidence of the premium that Paul places on Christianity and embedded Christianity in the context of real flesh and blood Christian community, fellow disciples, They knew him. He knew them. They knew one another. Pass along those greetings. They love each other. They meant something to each other. They had value and importance one to another. Real flesh and blood Christian community is not to be trifled with. It is not to be dismissed. Even from this letter, Paul is evidencing how central this is in his own Christian life. Brothers and sisters, here's the thing. You and I won't finish the Christian life well if we separate ourselves from the company of believers especially the local body of Christ in the congregation. God did not make us to go it alone. We need one another. We need the fellowship of the saints. So praise God for the church. Warts and all, for all her failures and all of her foibles and all of her flaws and all of her oddities and weirdness, praise God for the church of Jesus Christ. We need each other to spur one another on to keep going, to keep fighting the good fight, to keep pressing on for the cause of King Jesus. The fellowship of the saints is one of God's vital, absolutely vital means of grace to you. Paul knows how essential it is, and we must know that too. So that's the fourth thing. But then fifthly and finally, we must live, if we must live the Christian life, we need to live and finish well. We need to do it ever dependent on grace. Ever dependent on grace. Paul did. At the very end of his letter, you see how Paul gives this benediction? Verse 22, the Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. And and by the way, Paul's words are not just a kind of nicety, just a way of wrapping up the letter. This is not just a a formal way to to wrap up a a Greco-Roman epistle, a a little flourish at the end. This isn't Porky Pig at at Looney Tunes. That's all, folks. That's not what a benediction is. No. Timothy needs the Lord's presence, just like Paul needs the Lord's presence. 
when nobody else is with him. And Timothy needs the Lord's presence. So what does Paul say to him? The Lord be with your spirit. That's huge. That's not just some throwaway line. Remember way back in Exodus 33, after the, the golden calf debacle, the, the horrific idolatry, the Lord tells Moses, go on ahead to the promised land. Take the people to the promised land, Moses. I will not go with you. You remember Moses' reply? Lord, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Lord, if you won't go with us, if your presence isn't with us, then end it here. It's not worth it. The whole essence of your grace is that you will be our God and we will be your people. We need your presence with us. And God Almighty responds to Moses, the covenant mediator's prayer. And he says, I have heard that prayer, Moses, and I will be with you. Paul is saying, Timothy, the Lord be with you. The, the, the benediction, again, we, sometimes we think of the benediction as just a nice biblical sounding way to say service is over. But it's so much more than that. The benediction is actually a total reversal of the curse of Eden, you know? Right, after their sin, what did Adam and Eve hear? Go. Away. Out of the garden. Out of my presence. I will not be with you and you will not be with me. Praise God for the gospel. Because you hear it in every worship service, every Lord's Day, from God's word himself. And what does he say? What's the first thing you hear out of God's mouth at the beginning of every service? Come. Come into my presence. Come worship me. Come be with me. Come dwell in my presence. Come before me in the splendor of holiness. Come in and through the merits of my son and be with me because I delight to be with you. And at the end of every service... You hear, go. But it's not the go of Eden. It's not the banishment or the curse of Eden. No, no. It is go, and I will be with you. You are my people. I am your God because of Christ, my son, because of his death and resurrection in your room and in your stead. You believe him. You are united to me forever. I will be with you. So go, and go as I go along with you. And then Paul concludes grace be with you all. How is Timothy going to cross the finish line? How is he going to cope with being abandoned in the midst of faithful ministry? How, how is his church going to deal with opposition or their own failings? It's not by their own resources, but by the grace of God. Grace, put another way, God's favor be with you, Timothy. The smile, not the frown of his judgment, but the smile and the brightness of his countenance, his favorable disposition, his disposition of blessing, grace be with you, Timothy. Even as Paul says out, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. You see that there back at the top in verse 6, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. Paul is invoking that language from the Old Testament sacrificial system, that drink offering that, that last offering that's poured out on the altar in a, in a sequence of different offerings. There's, a, there, there, there's too much symbolism going on here to talk about just now. But know this. The drink offering of wine signified rest and completion. The offering, the, the, the work was done. Wine symbolized celebratory gladness and satisfaction. No coincidence that that cup of wine, by the way, that cup of the new covenant in his blood that Jesus offered up at the Last Supper... Right? Jesus is the final offering. The work is about to be complete. And here's Paul saying, I've poured out my life like that drink offering. I'm coming to the end. 
I've poured out my life investing in you, in God's people, Timothy. My time to rest is near. The the, the drink offering is the last one. The work is coming to an end. And I want to see you. I'm about to cross that finish line, and I want to see you on the other side of that finish line too, son in the faith. The Christian life is hard, brothers and sisters. I, I don't know where it happened exactly. I'm sure we could research it, but somehow we Americans got the idea that it would be easy. But it's relationally hard. Friends and family may indeed forsake you. And it's hard dispositionally. It's hard vocationally. It's hard whether you're in full-time vocational ministry or whether you're an ordinary Christian disciple just trying to live life and provide for your family and do what's right. Whether you live in a huge family or whether you're a single person all by yourself, it's going to be hard. But the Lord will stand by you. He is faithful. And by his grace, he will keep us so that we may be found faithful all the way to the end. Let us heed the lessons from the end of Paul's life. And by the grace of God, let us avail ourselves of these glorious yet simple resources that God has put at our disposal. And let us press on together. Tis grace has led us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. Bless the Lord for his word to us tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, and we pray that truly you would seal it to our hearts this night. And we ask that indeed by your grace you would keep us faithful, even all the way to the end. In Jesus' name, amen.